turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danprofshow.com where you can get podcasts and program as you can on iTunes and Spotify on social media at Dan Prof Show. And um, we begin today with the purge, the latest and the greatest, as well as the boomerang to the purge. So we've seen this week the Epoch Times be demonetized by YouTube. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of, uh, you know, erasure of names from uh, from from being extolled in the public arena, like you know the, the name Abraham Lincoln on a school in San Francisco, for example. Uh, frankly, the use of acronyms in San Francisco, indicia of white supremacy, says uh, one art director out that way. Uh, and we're also seeing the boomerang, uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, having a press conference to talk about legislation to penalize big tech for their censoriousness for deplatforming people. Legislation filed in Minnesota to do the same. You have heard, we, we have talked on this show the other week about uh, suggestions on blogs like uh, Ace of Spades that uh, the so called deplorables in the skilled trades should deplatform their leftist customers, use the same litmus test for their services that big tech is using for access to their platforms. You want your uh, toilet uh, fixed, uh, call a plumber, and the plumber says, who's you vote for? The landscaper comes over and he sees a hate has no home sign in the yard. Sorry, don't serve you. Uh, do we really want to go that direction? We started this conversation with Rabbi Dove Fisher in part yesterday. We continue it today with Gad Saad. He is a professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal. He's a former uh, holder of the Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption. He's the author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, and the host of The Sod Truth. See what he did there? Uh, Gad, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, good to be with you again, Dan. Thanks. So um, you uh, wrote an interesting uh, piece recently about um, the uh, cultural conflict in the United States, and you compared it to... um, uh, a particular civil war, not just the prospect of civil war in this country and often the comparisons between North and South, uh, although it won't be regional as much as ideological, perhaps this time around. You compare it to the sort of uh, the tribal civil war of Lebanon. Indeed. So for your viewers or listeners who may not know this, uh, my family and I escaped the brutality of the Lebanese civil war in the mid 70s. We were part of the last remaining Jewish community in Lebanon, and it became untenable to be Jewish in the Middle East. Now, Lebanon, even though it has always been referred to as, you know, the Paris of the Middle East and the most progressive of the Middle Eastern countries, it was still completely organized along tribal lines. So even within the constitution of Lebanon, you know, 
the person who's going to be prime minister has to be of a certain religion, the person who's going to be president has to be of another religion, the number of seats you get in parliament depends on your religion, and it's viewed as completely normal. Everything, every the DNA of the society is viewed through the lenses of which tribe you belong to, in this case, which religious tribe you belong to. So the end result of tribal thinking, and hence in the current instantiation, identity politics, is what happened to Lebanon. Now, I, when I warn people about the dangers of going into identity politics, I don't mean that there's going to be a civil war you know, in uh, 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 Tacoma, Washington tomorrow morning, but give it enough time, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, then history is very clear. You will have a complete disintegration of society. Well, and, and you know, the comparison is perhaps more apt than people want to admit, because in lieu of actual uh, religious differences, you know, religious uh, uh, tribes, as is the case in Lebanon, uh, we have political tribes who essentially treat their ideology in religious terms. So, I mean, uh, if they decide that identitarianism is their religion, then that's no different than and, and versus those who believe in you know content of character, for example, then that becomes uh, similar in terms of the nature of the conflict between the Sunnis and the Shias or anybody else Two two belief systems that conflict. Exactly. Right. I'm glad you brought up the Sunni versus Shia, right? They're both Muslim. And yet look what happened in Iraq, right? So. The, the human capacity to engage in coalitional thinking is endless. It really is part of our DNA to view the world as red team, blue team, us versus them. Uh, the problem comes where the, 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 the metric of assortment in terms of whether you're a blue team or red team, whether it is based on foundational metrics that are consistent with you know, liberal, secular societies. And I, when I say secular, I don't mean I'm anti-religion. I just mean exactly what it says, secular, right? enlightened society. So, for example, I could have a lot more in common with a Muslim who is uh, very enlightened in his thinking than an Orthodox Jew uh, who may not be uh, holding views that are consistent with what Canada espouses to be. I, I, I reside in Canada. So, in other words, my commitment to foundational values for well-functioning societies supersedes my religious identity, notwithstanding the personal history that I have, I may be more uh, uh, complicitous with a you know, Muslim than I am with a Jew. And so this is what I mean when I say people should belong to the tribe of truth rather than to artificial tribes. Uh, you know, pursue science, pursue reason, pursue logic, pursue values that enrich people in a, in a truly liberal. When I say truly liberal, I mean classical liberalism in that sense, rather than all of these you know, grotesque tribal identity politics that we're seeing today. It's really disheartening for someone like me to see what the U.S. is sinking into. Well, why does it necessarily uh, trend towards um, civil dispute, uh, dispute uh, among tribes, perhaps uh, violence, as opposed because, uh, uh, no, but no, but as opposed to go going in another direction, which is uh, going in to, in in the direction of a totalitarian society. Uh, that where you have sort of all the institutions controlled by people who share a, 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 the same ideology all fold into the state, which those same people have control of, and uh, they just um, you know go the way of uh, the Soviet bloc. I, I I'm thinking of the green grocer. I'm thinking of Václav Havel's green grocer, uh, who puts up the sign that says 
workers of the world unite, not but because he believes it, but because it's he's willingly participating in the facade to conceal himself from the fact that he is an obedient sentinel of the state at the same time concealing the, as Havel would say, the low foundations of the state's power over him. So everybody participates in this facade and one is subjugated by the other. Why couldn't it go that way? I mean, I, I suppose it can, but even that, that trajectory would not be a very uh, pleasant one. Right? No, uh, clearly. Uh, yeah. Right. I mean, look, uh, the U S has founded, uh, as most of your listeners would know, on, on a key model, right? A pluribus unum, out of many, one. What do we mean by this? We mean it doesn't matter if what your color is. It doesn't matter how fat or thin you are. It doesn't matter if you're purple or green or blue or white. Or As long as you adhere to certain foundational values that allow us to live in a common space and a shared experience, then you're welcome in, my brother. So you can't ultimately have a society that is founded on an ethos of constant tribalization. It just, it just can't work, right? I mean, it's like, it's basically like arguing, I want to jump off a roof and maybe this time gravity won't work. Maybe I'll be able to float. Well, jump off a roof a hundred times and the same outcome will happen 100 times. This history has found that if you have repeated balkanization, you will end up with downstream consequences that are not pleasant. And uh, again, people have very myopic view of time. So they think, but surely you're not saying there's going to be civil war like in Lebanon by next Tuesday. No, I don't mean by next Tuesday. But, you know, have a crystal ball and see what happens in 100 years. I mean, I live in the cesspool of academia where all of these idiotic ideas originally get spawned. And if I showed you the grants that I review, you would think it's satire. The, the, the endless, you know, how to create black spaces, how to build architecture using queer theory. It is such an incessant and orgiastic departure from reason <laughs> that it's as if we've forgotten the last 500 years of the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, and we're desperate to return to the Dark Ages. It's bewildering. Uh, yeah, I want to pick it up there in terms of like the, the basis for some of those grants that you're describing, whether you think these are true believers or they're just going where the money is, so to speak, or some combination of the two. And then also, back to that point that you made about the, these these approaches, these belief systems are going to come into conflict with one another and they have to be resolved one way or the other because they cannot peacefully coexist because one is essentially antagonistic towards peaceful coexistence. More with Gad Saad, professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal, also the author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense and host of The Saad Truth. We'll be right back. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Gad Saad. He's a professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal, former holder of the Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption, author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, and he's also the host of The Saad Truth. 
Um, God, uh, we were talking before the uh, break of, about um, these grants that you review from uh, uh, those in your areas of discipline, like evolutionary behavioral sciences, and just how sort of identitarian laden they are. And the question I left was, is this indicative of people going where they know the money is to get grants to do this research to, you know, get by and try to climb up the rungs of the academic ladder? Or are these all, you know, identitarian automatons? Right. So before I answer that question, and forgive me for correcting you, the the nonsense that I refer to doesn't come from the evolutionary behavioral sciences. It comes from the humanities in general, and oh, in some cases, okay. the social sciences. Uh, in the evolutionary behavioral sciences, we are still connected to reality and to science. Well, that's but good to hear. Right. Yeah, that's good yeah. to know. Uh, I don't think it's so much a question of going where the money is. I think it's, first of all, the, the people who are applying for their for these grants are the products of you know parasitic ideas that they've been inculcated uh, with for the past 30, 40 years. So their whole entire education has been mired in this kind of nonsense and BS. And so they're basically aping that which they learned, right? Yeah. So they, so what happens in academia is you create an ecosystem that is otherwise perfectly decoupled from reality. For, so, so the consequences of your ideas don't really matter. And then you just play along within that uh, reward system. Now, the reason why, so I'm housed in the business school, the reason why the business school or the engineering school hasn't been as parasitized by these idea pathogens is because we ultimately uh, are be- beholden to reality, right? I can't build a mathematical model to understand consumer behavior using postmodernist mathematics, right? Uh, the engineer can't build a bridge using postmodernist physics. So some disciplines more than others are more likely to succumb to this nonsense. And so then you have this conflict of visions, to borrow a Thomas Sowell-ism, and uh, people say, well, you know, we just have to unify, we have to be unity, we have to understand one another, we have to examine how thick our bubble is, and so on and so forth. seems to me there's a a fundamental problem. You have uh, the perspective of the Islamo-fascist from those who are supportive of reimagining our First Amendment rights, meaning constricting them, and otherwise imposing an orthodoxy, whether they're in a C-suite uh, at a big tech company or they're, uh, you know, part of the squad in in the House Democrat Socialist Caucus. So, so the, 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 it's not possible to exist when you have that sort of expansionist, uh, authoritarian ideology on the march. You're, they're going to come into conflict. Now, the question is, how does that conflict get resolved to their favor or to the favor of the peaceful pluralist? You're exactly right. So let me give you two concrete examples for your listeners. Uh, you often have uh, folks who belong to a group called Queers for Palestine walking around, you know, signaling how virtuous they are, right? So if you are a person who is part of the LGBTQ community, do you think it is better for you to flourish in Tel Aviv or in the Gaza Strip? And yet they are Queers for Palestine, to use their term. So imagine how fractured their minds must be to be able to hold that position, right? They're not queers for Tel Aviv, which is one of the hotbeds of a flourishing liberal gay community. They are queers for the Gaza Strip and for Palestine. So that's one example. The other example is the battle that we see between uh, progressives who are avowed feminists and the transgender activists, right? So J.K. Rowling 
uh, went from being an icon of progressivism to being indistinguishable from Himmler because she said, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you mean that uh, people menstruate? I thought there was a term for that. It was called women. For her saying that, <laughs> right, she became, I mean, literally, as I said, indistinguishable from the head of the Nazi party. So, so, so you're exactly right. The problem is the end result of all of these movements is an orgiastic self-cannibalism, right? The proverbial snake that ends up eating its tail. Eventually, they're going to collide, and then you sit back with your popcorn and watch the show. Mm. Um, there's a, a study that came out recently from a couple of Stanford academics uh, trying to answer the question, why are uh, narcissists uh, so successful in organizational politics? How, how do these narcissistic leaders uh, who have numerous negative traits wind up in charge of the entities they lead? Why are, why are they so good at attaining leadership positions? And um, they uh, suggest that uh, those who are higher in narcissism more likely than those who are lower to see organizations in political terms uh, in, in, in terms of political opportunities, more willing to engage in organizational politics, more skilled political actors. So they have the, the opportunity through politics, they have the motive, and they have the means. Um, I, I wonder what you think about that. You mean thinking about all of the goofballs in uh, positions of authority, whether in Congress or in state legislatures and governor's mansions around the country. We've seen that played out during this pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, this sort of, again, the sort of the psychology here that uh, perhaps needs to be addressed. Uh, you need to get uh, people that are, um, I, I guess, less grandiose with their narcissism in positions of decision making. Well, listen, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it is difficult to imagine a group of people that are less impressive than the sort of recurring politician. Right. Think about in the old days when when you went into politics you typically came from an established profession, right? You were a, a village physician who decides to run for Congress. You were a successful lawyer who then 20 years into your law practice, you go into politics, but then you return to your prior career. But now we have politicians who enter politics like our noble uh, or your noble Joe Biden. And uh, he's been in politics since I think Isaac Newton died, right? <laughs> so, and, and, you know, he's achieved such great things for the past 50 years. So, of course, the people who are going to be uh, uh, driven to enter these uh, positions of power are likely people that you don't want to have in power, right? So, for example, many people have asked me both privately and publicly, hey, why don't you, know, why don't you enter into politics, Dr. Saad? And I tell them uh, I'm, I, I would be a useless politician because I am so honest so non-diplomatic now doesn't mean i'm impolite or or gauche or, or or callous but i'm simply too honest to be able to navigate the daily minefields that would require me to lie and cheat and manipulate and so on and so you're exactly right people who ascend to these positions regrettably have some of the worst personal traits that you could imagine yeah. So when we come back, I, I want to explore that a little bit more because it, it, they have the worst personal traits and, and personal traits in, in, in terms of uh, you know, organizational leadership. But it's a little bit more dangerous than that. And, and going back to this notion of some sort of conflict within uh, within society, within American society that goes beyond um, uh, pundits on one of the ghastly cable news network shows. Uh, the treatment of and, and sort of perhaps the, the new iteration of the purge going after your political opponent's supporters 
in a way that uh, is also uh, reminiscent of places that are authoritarian or totalitarian nature. I want to get um, Professor Saad's perspective on that. Uh, he is the author of Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. He's also the host of The Saad Truth. We'll be right back with more. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Professor Gad Saad. He's Professor of Marketing at Concordia University in Montreal. He's also the author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, and host of The Saad Truth. Uh, Professor, before the break, we're talking about these um, grandiose narcissists that uh, rise to positions of decision-making in spite of limited skill sets that uh, have discernible market value. And then, you know, sort of fold in to one another for everybody to protect their fiefdom and advance this now identitarian ideology. But this latest iteration, what you see happening in terms of the advantage the left has attempted to take, the Jacobins really have attempted to take from what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, the the rioting and the violence that occurred there and really go after Trump voters writ large. First of all, to characterize all Trump voters as sort of violent extremists, the Biden administration to the president Biden to direct his uh, director of national intelligence to identify the threats from violent extremists who engage in hate speech. I mean, they're basically using the terminology that they use to describe Trump voters, generally speaking. And now you have uh, institutions that are reorienting themselves not only to advance the poison of identitarianism, but also to purge anybody with a any history of supporting Trump from their ranks. And I wonder, I mean, if this is sort of the powder keg that you're talking about that may not explode next Tuesday, but it also may not be as far off as we think. Exactly right. Look, there are cases, I mean, certainly growing up in the Middle East, even on Twitter, there is a organization that keeps track of these grotesque anti-Semitic posts that people put up. And so let me mention one example of that, and it's going to relate to your question. So you might have a Muslim surgeon who says, well, you know, if I get a Jew in front of me, you know, I'm not going to, so, right, so, so screw the Hippocratic oath. My tribal allegiance and my genocidal hate supersedes that, right? Mm-hmm. And in the context of the Middle East, espousing that position is perfectly fine. But And that person simply doesn't know that he or she is not supposed to espouse those anti-Semitic uh, feelings, you know, in the West. Well, here's what's happening now. Uh, replace the Jew by Trump voters, right? So you demonize them. So it's perfectly acceptable now in polite society. You can go on the Bill Marshall and be called Katie Couric and say, you know, we really need to find a way to deprogram Trump voters. She is sufficiently emboldened to say that openly, publicly, and she gets claps from the audience. And she's not the only one to say it. So once we've gotten to the zeitgeist where people can say things like, let's deprogram and reprogram people because they hold political positions that are different from us, the train to hell is coming quickly for you. Get on board. What do you think of the the self-loathing evangelical Christians, the David Frenches of the world, for example, who are calling for uh, evangelical Christians to apologize for supporting Trump? 
Well, that's the reflex of self-flagellation. So it's interesting that uh, the person, I, I don't know who the person is that you're speaking of, but in, in my book, in The Parasitic Mind, I talk about self-flagellation as a sort of progressive virtue, right? I am bad. I am white. I am the West. I am a male. And then I self-flagellate. Well, as you know, self-flagellant go back to some Catholic sex, right? You demonstrate mm-hmm. your religious piety by, by hitting yourself because, you, I mean, you are sinful. And so imagine where now we have a a language that basically says that, you know, self-flagellate because you suffer from an original sin called you are a white male and so on. It's grotesque. So people, this is why in Chapter 8 I talk about uh, activate your inner honey badger. If you have values that you think are well-founded, that you can articulate well and defend, you have to be as fierce as the honey badger. Not violent, but you have to be ideologically fierce. Never retreat. One of the reasons I don't get canceled is because I am a honey badger. If you come after me, you better not miss, because if not, I'm coming after you, your family, your dead ancestors. In other words, there's no end to how far I will take the debate to bring you down. So people have to have the strength of their convictions when they walk around in the world. Let's close our conversation with an example of that, uh, this uh, very entertaining uh, Twitter tete-a-tete you had with Seth Rogen. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Thank you for pointing it up. My God, I could—I can't believe how viral it went. You know, uh, yeah. For the for the for the view, listeners who, who don't know this, Seth Rogen came on and you know attacked me for having put up a clip that he said was stupid, and because I was talking about you know the virtue signaling of the elite ruling class, and he said, and so he was kind of defending why he is a socialist and so on. And I just smashed him to bits, not because I was trying to be mean to him. I don't know him. I don't care about him. I've seen a few of his movies. They're okay. But it's because the, 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 the hypocrisy of you know, reaping the benefits from the most capitalistic industry in the most capitalistic country in the history of the world while you're sitting in Malibu and doing your Che Guevara thing is simply impossible for me to stomach. So I went after him and he ran away like a little girl. Gad Saad, professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal, former holder of the Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption, author of The Parasitic Mind, How the Infectious Ideas, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. He's also the host of The Saad Truth. Professor Saad, thanks so much for joining us. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Delightful to talk to you. Cheers. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, St. Fauci, the patron saint of COVID-19, had a little confab uh, that uh, the Amazon Post carried live yesterday. Uh, He was asked by uh, one of their fungible reporters about uh, two masks. And he said, uh, you know, my colleagues and I were just discussing this yesterday, talking about uh, the CDC is looking at doing a study of seeing whether or not two masks are better than one. It makes you makes common sense, you would think. Um, well, um, perhaps it doesn't make common sense. I, I, I don't know what's happening. The world is being turned upside down. But Michael Osterholm, who's an epidemiologist from the University of Minnesota, a favorite of the D.C. press corps, he says of the two masks that uh, they could actually do more harm than good if one of the face coverings isn't being worn correctly. So 
he's sort of tied to the middle of the issue. Tony Fauci's keeping his options open. I think, frankly, per the Ioannidis protocol, banishing the, somebody who used to be considered one of the top epidemiologists in the world because he doesn't share the established opinion of Tony Fauci. Now, Michael Osterholm has to be shut down, like John Ioannidis has been from the D.C. press corps, not recognized as an expert anymore because he's sort of freelancing here and not really staying in formation with Fauci. And and we're talking about science or common sense or something. Oh, interesting. So um, so there's all kinds of questions about masks. Um, I know we were going to wear them forever. That's for sure. Um, that's the good news. Uh, but I just want to make sure we have the right number of masks. We're starting young enough, uh, maybe in vitro. I, I don't know. But there was this uh, study in Germany about uh, the impacts of uh, mask wearing on kids. And um, by uh, the end of last year, there was this registry that these German researchers created had been used by about 20,000 people who entered data on a total of almost 26,000 children. The average wearing time for masks for these kids was 270 minutes a day, so, you know, like four and a half hours. Uh, Impairments caused by wearing the mask were reported by 68% of parents. They included irritability, 60% reporting, headache, 53% reporting, difficulty concentrating, 50% reporting, less happiness, 49% reporting, Reluctance to go to school slash kindergarten, 44% reporting. Malaise, 42% reporting. Impaired learning, 38% reporting. And drowsiness or fatigue, 37% reporting. And, of course, you know what I say to all that. Well, it's better to not learn or feel uh, malaise than it is to die. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Eric Naputi. He's the owner of Naputi Wellness Centers in St. Louis, founder of Wellness Warrior as well. Dr. Naputi, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. How are you today? Um, so um, what, what's uh, your perspective on, on mask wearing? I guess start in vitro and let's go up in age from there. Well, I tell you what, the thing with in vitro wearing is a very interesting topic to me. And I think at some point we're probably going to get there with as crazy as the world is. You know, one of the things that I always talk about is common sense and how we say common sense isn't that common anymore. And we don't have common sense. We have COVID sense. And uh, I think many of us um, remember back in, uh, you know, early when COVID started in the spring of last year, uh, or when it really started getting rampant, when Tony Fauci, the Surgeon General, everybody who's everybody said, hey, don't wear a mask. Wearing a mask during a pandemic literally gives you a false sense of protection and just don't wear it. Well, and then we remember two weeks later, whenever they all changed their tune, and according to the World Health Organization, when they were interviewed by the BBC, they said, this is Dr. Cohen who said this, the reason why they changed their tune wasn't based off of empirical scientific data, it was based off of political persuasion. And then remember when Tony Fauci came back and said, well, you know, I did tell a lie, but it was a noble lie. Yes. Bottom line is he lied. When we're talking about Fauci, we assume nobility. That is assumed. Well, you know what assuming does. But I'll tell you this, is, is as a practicing physician and as a doctor that literally trains hundreds and thousands of doctors every year, one of the things that we're seeing in a rise, and I've, I've been in practice 20 years, and I've never seen as much uh, bacterial respiratory infections as I have now, especially in young children. Again, even Dr. Fauci said the number one cause of death during the Spanish flu of 1918 was respiratory bacterial infections. And we're finding that to be the case now. And just again, that study that came out of Germany is such a damning study because, you know, 26,000 kids were looked at and you read off the impairments perfectly. 
And in a world that we live in right now where, you know, kids already don't want to go to school, uh, ADD, ADHD, and concentration are already on the rise. Now wearing a mask puts more impairments on these children and really puts our kids back decades. So what I hear you saying is two masks, three masks, four? (laughs) Right. What's the magic number? The study out of out of Virginia Tech, when they said, well, maybe we should wear two masks, uh, uh, a mask and then a cloth mask over that uh, gives us 75 percent protection. And wearing three of them gives us 90 90 protection against what you put a pillow over your face enough and, and smother it. You're going to not be able to get a virus, in, but you're going to die because you can't breathe. Listen, the reality is this. We know this for a fact. If you have too much of a barrier between your mouth and the world or your nose in the world, that that's going to increase carbon dioxide more than anything. And that is a very scary proposition in the body, considering when carbon dioxide goes up, our body becomes more acidic. When we're acidic, we're more susceptible to sickness and disease. So we have some serious problems going on, and, and the mask is one of them. But the reality is this, is we've been so scared and feared into wearing this thing that I'm just telling you, people are scared to death to take their mask off. Could you advise us on at what decibel level we should uh, maintain our cheering during uh, the Super Bowl this weekend? Uh, it's, the CDC <laughs> is a little unclear on this. Well, if you, according, if you listen to Fauci and God bless old Deborah Burks and even the good old politicians in your in your area, you're supposed to just snap your fingers and not be excited about anything. God forbid people get vocal and talk and spread a virus. And in fact, if you look now, there was a study that was just published out that shows that there's more anal, uh, oral spread of uh, fecal matter to the mouth uh, to spread COVID than there is droplets to droplets. So I don't know who those people are hanging out with, but uh, those are not my friends. Yeah, that's Uh, exactly right. (laughs) Well, so uh, we got an answer for that. We got the uh, the Chinese anal swabs that are going to be popularized at the airports. Well, soon coming to a neighborhood near you, as well as the drive through anal swaps. That ought to be a pretty <laughs> thing to drive by and see. <laughs> Dr. Eric Naputi, owner of Naputi Wellness Centers in St. Louis, founder of Wellness Warrior as well. Doc, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, you read uh, Jeff Bezos's Fare Thee Well email to his employees. Jeff Bezos announcing yesterday, stepping down as CEO of Amazon to, I don't know, focus on uh, the Amazon Post and inside the Beltway. No, bigger, better thing. Space travel, maybe. I don't know. Uh, this after Amazon posted its first $100 billion quarter earnings, uh, something like $125 billion in the fourth quarter. Here's what he said in his uh, bye-bye. As Amazon became large, we decided to use our sale and scale and scope to lead on important social issues. Two high-impact examples are $15 minimum wage and the climate pledge. In both cases, we staked out leadership positions and then asked others to come along with us. In both cases, it's working. Other large companies are coming our way. I hope you're proud of that as well. 
uh, ending with uh, keep inventing, don't despair. When the first the idea looks crazy, remember to wander. Let your curiosity be your compass, and so on and so forth. Very much sort of the high school commencement speech sort of letter. But the uh, focus on what we were talking about in part uh, with uh, Professor Saad about uh, the virtue signaling from the woke uh, socialist, the champagne socialist, uh, crystal socialist in the case of Jeff Bezos, um, Lafitte Rothschild socialist. I don't know. I don't know what you can uh, analogize that sort of wealth to actually in terms of um, spirits or uh, fine wine. But uh, $15 minimum wage and climate pledge. It's great. I, I'm glad he pays people $15 an hour at minimum. I uh, hope people make as much as money as they can make in every pursuit that they undertake. The mandates are the problem, though, because not everybody's similarly situated to Amazon, are they? So, for example, when you try to just impose wages by government fiat, you can also have this impact. Kroger is closing two grocery stores, Ralph's and Food for Less, in Long Beach, California, after the city of Long Beach voted to require the supermarket company to give employees an extra $4 an hour in hazard pay during the pandemic. The company, in a statement, as a result of that decision to pass an ordinance mandating extra pay for grocery workers, we have made the difficult decision to permanently close long struggling store locations in Long Beach. This misguided action by the Long Beach City Council oversteps the traditional bargaining process and applies to some, but not all grocery workers in the city. Right, because, of course, they targeted the big boys the ordinance applying only to stores with more than 300 employees uh, nationwide and 15 employees in Long Beach, so not the mom and pops. Because, you know, the big guys are the people with the ability to pay, and they're also the people with the ability to close and the ability to move. $15 minimum wage mandate uh, nationally. CBO projects that would cost 1.3 million jobs. But if it feels good and it makes if it makes Jeff Bezos feel like he's less of a fraud, then that's the important thing. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida is going after the big tech companies. Well, you could say it that way, or you could say it perhaps he's trying to protect uh, those uh, on their platforms from not being uh, arbitrarily deplatformed because of uh, their views. DeSantis at a press conference announcing legislation to protect the privacy of Floridians as well as to protect big tech from putting its finger, prevent big tech, I should say, from putting its finger on the scale of candidates for office in Florida. Like perhaps a governor, Ron DeSantis, who's up for reelection in 22. But his point, uh, regardless of his political fortunes, is uh, a compelling one. Well, I think it's been done in a, in a way that's completely unprincipled. I, they, they mentioned the Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's story was true. OK, we now know it was true. 
and the typical corporate media outlets, they just chose to ignore it. Obviously, they wanted to beat Trump. They had a, they had a, a view on the election. They didn't want to give it any air. So we rely on social media to go around that, not let corporate legacy media outlets control the discourse and let us speak. So you had the New York Post to run it, and you couldn't get any traction. You couldn't get any reach on it because big tech put their thumb on the scale. So that was true. What they said at the time, oh, it was, it was, it's a conspiracy or it's based on, on, on hacked information. Are you kidding me? You're trying to tell me if there was hacked information that could damage me, you guys wouldn't print it? Give me a break. You can whiz on my leg, but don't tell me it's raining. You guys would print it every single day if you could. And big tech would allow it to proliferate every single day, 24-7. You can whiz on my leg, but don't tell me it's raining. Uh, that should be his campaign slogan uh, for re-election. DeSantis also making the point this is also to protect small businesses from being deplatformed, small businesses that rely on that uh, infrastructure to um, exist. We need to bring some protection for folks. I really, really worry when you have a business owner that may rely on some of these tools to do small business. If they engage in wrong think or they go to the wrong political event, then all of a sudden they can act in concert and just take take you off. You need to have protection against that. Under this uh, measure in Florida, technology companies that deplatform a candidate during an election will face a daily fine of $100,000 until the candidate's access to the platform is restored. If a tech company promotes a candidate for office against another, the value of that free promotion must be recorded as a political campaign contribution enforced by the Florida Elections Commission. That's going to be really interesting to try to track. The bill also empowers the Florida Attorney General to bring action against big tech companies under Florida's Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act if they violate new policies laid out in the bill. Also gives users advance notice of a rule change and before shutting down an account uh, demand rule change before shutting down an account and uh, uh, demands that rule be applied consistently. And if they use uh, their content and user related algorithms to suppress or prioritize the access of any content related to a political candidate or cause on the ballot, the company will also face daily fines. Uh, A related story in Minnesota legislation also drafted there introduced uh, to to be introduced in the state Senate uh, this week. Couched in terms of discrimination prohibits Internet service providers and social media companies from restricting users' content on the basis of race, sex, religion, or political orientation. And it includes statutory damages of $50,000 per violation, along with recovery of attorney's fees. For more on all of this, uh, Big Tech Boomerang, we're pleased to be joined again by Khalif Lataru, Real Clear, uh, Real Clear Media Fellow and Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Khalif, thanks for, so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. So what about uh, the state legislative actions that are afoot in Florida and Minnesota and uh, probably others to follow because of the, frankly, the populist uh, benefit that politicians get from going after those big tech companies, whether you're Republican or Democrat? You know, it's going to be really interesting to, to see where this all heads, because, you know, I, I think that you're because obviously now with the administration change, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of Republican states that are going to try to, to look locally, try to kind of restrict this. I think it is going to be really interesting how these state level things collide with Section 230. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is really interesting because, you know, both parties now agree that, you know, two, 230 has to go. 
And, um, yeah, it, it's going to be really fascinating because, you know, Republicans say 230 needs to go uh, because, you know, the, the social media companies are using it to essentially justify any action they take. Uh, conversely, Democrats also believe it has to go, uh, but only because it's allowing the social media companies to not do enough to restrict the speech that they yeah. dislike. like. It seems uh, like so I, 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 I want fascinating. Yeah. And I wonder if Republicans are playing. Um, on uh, the Democrats' turf on that Section 230 obsession, because you've had uh, some interesting comments from conservative uh, uh, platform providers like the CEO of of MeWe, uh, bloggers like uh, William Jacobson over at Legal Insurrection, professor of law at Cornell, say, you know, Section 230 protects me, and uh, you eliminate Section 230, you're actually providing a benefit for the big boys with the deep pockets as compared to the little old guys, whether you're me, we, or you're just a blogger, um, uh, and, and you don't have those deep pockets. Yeah. You know, if you repeal 230, there's kind of two things that happen here. So basically what happens essentially is that companies become suddenly liable for how their platform, I mean, at the highest level, 230 says, if somebody comes along and posts something on Facebook, you can't sue Facebook for what was posted. You have to you know, go after the person that posted it. And one of the challenges there is that if, if 230 is repealed, the social media companies then, as long as they delete uh, some, as long as they prevent something from being posted in the first place, they're okay. So what happens then is, A, uh, they're going to be really incentivized to just delete anything that they think could possibly upset anyone. Um, and so you'll have that piece, which I think is probably going to come down more on conservative speech than democratic speech, simply you know based on whatever party's in, in uh, power. But then also it's going to prevent new competition uh, because you know if you're a, a if you're a Facebook, you can afford to pay fifty thousand people to sit there uh, reviewing posts each day. If you're a small startup like Parler, uh, there's no way that you're going to be able to afford massive armies of people. Uh, and if a single post gets through, it could shut down your company. And I think it's going to be, you know, that's one of the challenges. People, you know, there, there's all this focus on repealing 230 without kind of thinking, well, what are the consequences? Once it's gone, what actually happens here? Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that uh, you have in, in both Minnesota and Florida a focus on political orientation, political content, and even more specifically in Florida, uh, protection of candidates' access, political candidates' That's clearly there's a recognition, even though nothing was happened at the federal level, that big tech companies are colluding in some material form to advance the candidates that they want. And um, and and this is an effort at the state level to try to do something about that, particularly with what DeSantis has uh, discussed. Yeah, you know, it, it is really interesting, um, you know, I, you know, again, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how these state-level initiatives uh, collide with federal, because you know you oftentimes see a lot of these. You know, and, and you know it was interesting this time when when Amazon got rid of Parler, uh, they actually cited Section 230 and said that this is a Section 230 yes, issue. Right. Um, and th- this is really the first time you've seen you know non-social media companies, like actually infrastructure companies that provide the, the plumbing of the internet, um, because that was always the argument. You know, people said, well, look, if you don't like Twitter, just make your own version of Twitter. Well, that. And, that, that was the, that was a hypocrisy of it. Section two thirty for us, but not for you. And you know, and, and that was what was so interesting is just the ability, like in this case, uh, Parler, the fact that literally uh, you saw the almost overnight. Uh, it just basically vanished from the face of the earth. And that to me is, is, you know, you can say what you want about moderation and, you know, all, all these other things. But to say that 
there's a handful of social media, there are a handful of Silicon Valley companies now with the power to literally flip a switch and get rid of a competitor, A, a competitor, uh, because, you know, Parler, yes, it was a small little startup, but it was technically a competitor to Twitter. And the fact that Silicon Valley was just able to flip a switch and completely get rid of it. But then also you have to ask, Amazon said, well, look, Parler isn't doing enough. They are content modeling, but not enough for us. But Twitter, on the other hand, uh, which also uses the Amazon services, well, yes, they also didn't do enough content moderation, but that's okay. We're not going to penalize them. And, you know, that again gets into that question of you say, well, this company isn't doing enough, so we're shutting them down. This company isn't doing enough, but yeah, that's fine. So, you know, again, it raises this whole question of where do we draw all these lines? Well, and uh, when we come back, uh, the other lines and, and drawing the lines is, you know, who's trafficking in the truth and who isn't and these uh, uh, self-appointed fact checkers or these, uh, f- you know, these fact check fact-checking minders employed by the big tech companies that decide what's true and what's not true, even when what they're deciding is true turns out not to be true. Uh, let's have that discussion with uh, Kalev Lataru, a Real Clear Media fellow, senior fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. We'll be right back with you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Kalev Lataru. He is a Real Clear Media Fellow, Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. And Kalev, uh, this uh, story about uh, Abraham Lincoln High School in uh, San Francisco. And the question uh, of whether or not uh, it was uh, going to be renamed, uh, this became a dispute among uh, one website that that shares humorous stories that posted it and the uh, social media minders uh, reintroducing the question of who fact check the fact who fact checks the fact checkers. Yeah, you know, this is a fascinating story. So there's something called, there's a site called the Babylon Bee, which is this, you know, satirical website, makes everything up. Um, you know, standard, kind of, like an, kind of like the onion, basically. And they have a sister site called Not the Bee, which shares things that really sound like satire, but are actually real news. Mm-hmm. And so in December, they shared this story, uh, and they titled it that San Francisco High School will be renamed because Abraham Lincoln did not do enough uh, for African-Americans. And uh, this, so USA Today, uh, it, which is a fact-checking partner of Facebook, they fact-checked it, said missing context, and uh, suddenly now anyone that accesses that, uh, that post will now see this warning label saying independent fact-checkers have said that this is misleading, uh, you know, it's, it's dangerous to read this, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Facebook can take action against this company, this uh, publisher, yada, yada, yada. Uh, well, it turns out that actually in their fact-check, USA Today said everything here is true. The difference is that uh, the, you know, the, the, the post, you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a social media post it's, and it's a humor site. It's gotta be small, you know, short and pithy. Uh, well, they said, well, you know, they're saying it, it is being renamed, but the school board has to take a vote and that vote doesn't happen for a few weeks. So it's, it's, you know, it's basically, you know, fake news essentially, because they're saying it has, it, it will happen and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, which you know, of course begs this whole question of what on earth are they fact checking humor sites for in the first place? Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but then what happens is then the school board actually takes the vote. Right. Uh, they and do the, the first vote, and they and, and they strip the name. 
and they strip the name, and USA Today does not update it. And what's interesting about this is it turns out, well, they're not going to update it because at the time period that the post was made, it hadn't, the vote hadn't happened yet. Even though the vote has happened now, so the post is actually correct now, they're sticking with the label, which means today when you still read that article, uh, you see this post saying, actually, no, it's, it's not really true. The name hasn't changed. And, you know, this is a challenge. As fact checkers now, you know, they used to do urban myths, like, you know, is Bigfoot alive? But, you know, they're expanding that. They're doing humor sites. They're also fact-checking the future. And this is a big thing. Another USA Today fact-check last year when Donald Trump said, look, uh, I predict that a few a week or two after the election, uh, suddenly there'll be a vaccine approved. And uh, I am saying that we will start putting uh, shots in people's arms uh, by, the, by December 31st. And again, USA Today fact-checked that said completely and utterly false. There's zero chance a vaccine will be approved uh, right. this year. Right. And, you know, zero chance before the end of 2021 is, you know, really optimistic that people get shot. So then, of course, obviously everything comes true exactly as he said. And here we are two months later. And still, fake news, you know, completely false today, and we'll get a vaccination. And, and, and the problem is that this has real-world consequences. Uh, you know, there was another Babylon Bee Snopes, uh, so another Babylon Bee satire said uh, that uh, CNN had installed an industrial washing machine in their newsroom, and reporters would come, insert their stories, and it would spin cycle them, add the right spin to it. And Snopes fact-checked that and said, well, we called CNN, we talked to all these people, and they confirmed they haven't installed a giant two-story or whatever washing machine. Um, and you might laugh at that, but the problem is that had real consequences. They were then told, Babylon B was then told, look, uh, you know, we're going to cut off uh, by, by Facebook. Facebook said, look, you're publishing fake news here. Uh, you know, we're going to cut off your advertising. We can suspend you. Uh, USA Today, same thing. Of uh, They published a thing saying that the courts had ruled that Ginsburg had not really died, and that the courts were, so literally, you have this, this satire piece saying, the courts have ruled Ginsburg isn't really dead, rushing to work with nation scientists to clone her so Trump can't replace her. And they fact-checked it. And said, well, yeah, I mean, to the courts, they said they haven't. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's so here, here's the thing there's there's, you know, the, the fact checkers, the, the, the Glenn Kessler's and, and these sorts of uh, goofs. You, you can fact check and to and, you know, pretend that you're the arbiter of the truth and delude yourself uh, over at the Amazon Post or whatever. Fine. I don't care um, when you're using yourself or you're in a position to be arbiter of truth and then you can negatively impact people like you're saying you can shut them down not 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 argue not say what that person said is wrong let me tell you here's the truth and and make your case for why you're right and that person is wrong but you can shut them down that that's where the problem is that's where the rub is it's that we have so little faith in other people that we have to prevent them from hearing anything that is debatable or even false. Because if you had real confidence in your ability to debunk things that are obviously false or things that are wildly false and people would and you had confidence that people would readily see them as false or that it would get you know fleshed out when you had back and forth about this particular issue, event, person then you wouldn't need to come down in the way that these social media fact checkers, minders are coming down. It says so much more about their attitude and the culture they're promoting than it does about, you know, one particular story or the other. That's exactly right. You know, again, uh, you know, what I've always said is, look, you know, 10 years ago, if, you know, if the fact checkers went and did something, you say, well, fine, you know, you, who cares? It doesn't really have an impact on the world. The problem today is that social media companies use them as absolute truth. 
uh, you know, in, in the case of the, the high school, the renaming of the high school, I asked Facebook, I said, well, what happens when a fact checker, uh, you know, doesn't update their fact check? Uh, do you take action on that? And they said, no, if uh, it's up to users, if they spot all outdated information, they have to contact the fact checkers themselves. And, you know, I've asked Facebook in the past, what happens if a fact checker is just maliciously attacking a website to try and shut it down and they're violating your own rules, they're doing all these things? And the answer again was, we, we, we wash our hands of that. We take no action. We just we trust the fact checkers uh, to do what they do. And, you know, that's again, it's the fact that literally these fact checks, when they, they're fact checking the human site, every one of those fact checks actually penalizes that site and pushes them closer to being deplatformed uh, from social media. And so there's, there's real world consequences to this stuff now. Before we uh, let you go, I, I did want to get to this uh, interesting piece that you did uh, at RealClearPolitics.com looking at uh, 12 years of Trump's tweets. Uh, and uh, the, you, uh, the, the Trump Twitter archive preserved uh, 56,000 utterances set by, sent by at real Donald Trump, the former president. First one on May 4th of 2009. So give me some of the top line takeaways from reviewing uh, that many tweets and, and over that period of time. Yeah, you know, at the highest level, what's interesting here is, you know, Trump has thought of the Twitter, you know, Twitter candidate. And it's true, he started using it. But actually, in 2015, when his candidate, when he really took off as a candidate, he actually started using Twitter less and less and less and less. It wasn't until he became president that suddenly he just exploded into the Twitterverse. Um, and what's also interesting is in the early days, when he first started using it from 2009 up until he became president, most of his tweets referred to himself. It was, you know, me, I, Donald Trump. Uh, it was amazing. Almost the day he became president, suddenly it, it, it switched and it was all about us and we. So he really did become presidential, uh, you know, in how he was uh, at least addressing the public. Um, so another piece I did is I actually looked at how Twitter has fared over the past year and a half. The two of them, you know, Twitter's doing just fine without Trump and Trump's doing just fine without Twitter. It's going to be really interesting to kind of see how that all plays out. He is Kalev Lataru, a Real Clear, Real Clear Media Fellow and Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Kalev, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Crisscrossed in the wrong direction Found myself in a conversation From a missed connection Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers He's Dan Proft And this is The Dan Proft Show Welcome back to the show, turning our attention to uh, geopolitics and economics. Uh, It's not just the Keystone Pipeline cancellation that uh, has uh, Canadians spinning. Poor Justin Trudeau, we thought uh, with the Democrat Socialists in the White House, things could be all hunky-dory. Maybe they could go out shopping for skinny suits. Maybe not. The uh, Buy American restrictions that are being advanced by the Biden administration also putting a crimp in Canada style, so writes Peter St. Ange, senior fellow at the Montreal Economic Institute and former fellow at the Mises Institute. He's also contributed to The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Post and Zero Hedge. Peter St. Ange, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So a bit of a right left, right cross left hook from the Biden administration for uh, for the Canadians. Uh, The Keystone Pipeline cancellation has gotten a lot of ink. But uh, what you write about in The Wall Street Journal, less so uh, the Buy American demands. That's right. So Biden has done two things 
uh, with an executive order last week. One of them is that he wants to raise the threshold of American components that products have to have in them. The other is he wants to eliminate all of these exceptions to those kinds of rules that Trump had put in. Uh, and both of these are, they're extremely disruptive. They're going to be terrible for consumers, but they're really hard on uh, Canadian export industries. Well, uh, give, give us an example of, of what you mean. I know you uh, write about it, uh, the automotive industry in, in particular and, right. and how they're you know, that that's situated such that uh, there is a cross-border competition as well as collaboration. And how does a, a Buy American disrupt that flow of commerce? That's exactly right. The way that the auto component industry works today is that the province of Ontario, it may as well be part of the U.S. in terms of supply chains. Uh, it's very, very integrated. It's right next to Detroit, right? So it's got a long history of uh, auto manufacturers down there. And so the way it'll work is, for example, U.S. scrap steel gets exported into Ontario. It gets worked into cars. There's other components from all over the world that are brought together. Some of them are assembled in the States. Some of them are assembled in Canada. And then they're re-exported back. So from the perspective of supply chains, Canada is really part of the U.S. It's, it's sort of one machine that works together. And when you try to stick a finger in there, uh, <laughs> you can really wreck things. Uh, and, you know, specific to the sort of nationalistic sentiment here, the specific risk is that if you break that smoothly operating North American supply chain, then the risk is that cars become more expensive, they become lower quality, and then people end up buying just a direct import. They buy a car from Korea. They just completely bypass the whole North American ecosystem. And you mentioned uh, something, you know, already the impact being felt. Scrap steel prices up 60% since November, while order backlogs have hit a two-and-a-half-year high. And you essentially insinuate that uh, these are the sorts of distortions you're going to get based on the policies that are being pursued. For sure. This is not the time to be, uh, you know, changing out entire industries between COVID uh, and then, you know, Federal Reserve uh, money printing. Uh, you have, you know, shortages. I mean, any kind of a, you know, we have a two and a half year backlog uh, on some sorts of uh, metals um, used as components. That is also known as a shortage. A two and a half year backlog is, is catastrophic, right? If you're trying to introduce a new company or a new product. Uh, and then, you know, when you have these price rises on top of that, you have these massive disruptions throughout a number of industries. And whether it's this sort of clumsy mandate or whether it's green, you know, policies that are probably next in the pipeline, these sorts of disruptions, they're really not helpful at the moment, right? Industries are trying to get back on their feet. There are already shortages and disruptions uh, that, this is not the time for this kind of uh, messing around. And uh, this also um, is a reminder of how important Canada is as a trading partner in the United States. There's so much emphasis on on China and that relationship. Um, but that relationship came into the fore more during the Trump administration again with the renegotiation of the of NAFTA into the USMCA, as well as with some of the back and forth of tariffs based on uh, tariffs the Trump administration initiated and and the Trudeau administration responded with, and now we seem to be uh, only heightening uh, some of that uh, destructive back and forth. Absolutely. And, you know, something that we want to keep in mind is that industries located in Canada or Mexico, they can be very complementary to U.S. industries, right? When you're shipping steel 40 miles and then you're shipping a car back 40 miles, this is supporting 
industries based in the U.S., right? In China, you don't have nearly that level of integration. So the end result is that any sort of policy that is, you know, punishing or um, either Canadian or Mexican manufacturing, that sort of um, rebounds and hits U.S. manufacturing as well. Uh, when we come back, I want to pull out a little bit and have a little bit la- larger conversation about uh, free trade. Maybe it's time we could get... Uh some on the uh, Republican side of the aisle to rediscover the utility of free trade as opposed to protectionism. Uh, more with Peter St. On, Schienerfeld, the Montreal Economic Institute, former fellow at the Mises Institute, right after this. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Peter Sainan, Schiener Fellow at the Montreal Economic Institute, former fellow at the Mises Institute, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Post, and Zero Hedge. And uh, just thinking about the Mises Institute and Ludwig von Mises, one of my favorite observations of his from human action is that in order to improve conditions, uh, one must uh, propagate a new mentality, not merely a new institution. Um, maybe to improve economic conditions, particularly as we try to semi-recover from COVID with semi-open countries, is to propagate a newfound mentality in the direction of free trade and uh, for socialists on both sides of the border to be reminded by, I don't know, capitalists on both sides of the northern border, uh, what my friend Don Boudreau likes to say, that the purpose of exporting goods and services is to import goods and services. Oh, for sure. And there are two aspects of it, right? One of them is sort of the human rights aspect. We have a right to trade with people just as we have a right to be friends with people or talk with people. Governments have put this uh, special sort of permission on, you know, anytime money changes hands, the government sort of pipes in. Now, presumably they did it because they want to cut. But at any rate, uh, we live in this bizarre world where it's as if you're sitting in the park and you'd like to talk to somebody and you have to get a license. It's insane. So, right, from a human rights perspective, we have the right to buy and sell with whomever we like. And if those people are in the same country or the same city or the same continent, none of this should be relevant to our right. Sorry. And then the second part of it is, of course, uh, if you can trade with anybody, you get much richer because if you can buy components from anywhere, it makes your products much better. And then your exports become extremely competitive. So the way to win at trade is to be open. And it's counterintuitive, but it's it's empirically very strong. Yeah. And uh, and we, we saw that play out. I mean, again, I understand people wanted to uh, see asymmetrical approach to China, and maybe there was some short-term pain required for long-term gain with respect to the Chinese. But, uh, but, but, but in terms of the impact, it's not really arguable that it made both countries poorer, the tariff tete-a-tete between the United States and China, and the same thing with the United States and Canada. But of course, industries have political power and profile, and consumers don't. Uh, uh, and so it's just, a, I guess it's a harder, ironically, it seems like it's harder to flack for the little guy when it comes to trade uh, than it is the big boys, even among people who have a mistrust of the big boys on behalf of the little guys. Absolutely. And that's the way that 
unfortunately, quote unquote, free trade works these days, you end up with these, I think uh, the U.S.-Korea free trade pact was something like 1,500 pages. Now, of course, to have true free trade, right, to have free trade between Connecticut and New Jersey, you don't have anything. You've got a single sentence in the Constitution, right? So what are the other, you know, 1,499 pages? And the answer is, it's this bidding, it's almost an auction by special interests where, you know, Hollywood wants IP protection, pharma wants IP protection, in exchange, we sell manufacturing down the river. So you have sort of this auction where you've got a bunch of interest groups in the US, you've got a bunch of interest groups in, say, Korea, and they hold an auction. And then the governments put all that together, they see what's their angle on it, what's their take, how are the special interests going to pay them back, and then they carry the water. So it's disgusting to even call these things free trade agreements. A free trade agreement should be one sentence. Yeah. QED, you are done. Yeah. Well, right, we're about uh, 1,500 pages short of that uh, uh, with, all the, with all these agreements, yeah, unfortunately. Well, so with, with respect to Canada, what, what uh, should the Biden administration expect will be the response to this one-two punch? We're talking about the Keystone Pipeline XL cancellation and, and this uh, Buy American imposition. Uh, are we going to be back into that protocol of, uh, of, of, of uh, firing tariffs back and forth at one another or something even more economically destructive? That's exactly what we should expect down the line. All countries have a whole list of uh, retaliatory measures that they can take. They calibrate it very carefully. I suspect that Canada is going to wait and see a little bit. It's a new administration. They don't want to make too many enemies. The U.S. is a so overwhelmingly important market for Canada that Canada has to tread lightly. Uh, for most countries, that's the case, right? The U.S. is a much bigger customer than the other direction. So Canada is probably going to sort of wait and see a little bit and test the waters and see who's an ally, who's a friend. Uh, there's going to be some sort of negotiation in the background, but fundamentally, that's how these things end, is that you've got to do retaliation because countries ha feel like they have to protect themselves. Now, of course, again, they could always do the Hong Kong thing and just throw it all open and say, eh. But, you know, there is some risk there. I mean, there are countries, specifically China, who are, in many ways, they are bad faith traders. Right. Uh, they do things like uh, Steel. mandating technology transfer, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's not if you throw it completely open, uh, there are some short term risks for sure. Uh, but right. That's what we're probably going to see as a tip for 10. What uh, have they given up on uh, trying to uh, rescue the uh, continuing construction of the Keystone Pipeline? I mean, there is uh, uh, some suggestion that uh, this uh, ironically that the precedent that was set during the Trump administration uh, by the, the United States Supreme Court preventing him from. Uh, from from eliminating the DACA designations, the DACA executive order that Obama uh, signed in his administration, which was illegal. He could not just rescind that without going through an administrative process. Well, you could argue that that standard the Supreme Court set, that precedent they set in that case could be used in terms of a reliance concern that was created by the executive order uh, animating the Keystone XL pipeline cannot be rescinded by Biden without going through an administrative process to sort of buy time for maybe a resolution or uh, some other outcome that's more positive than the one than than uh, more positive than cancellation, frankly. Right. And you'll probably see uh, various litigation in both countries. The parties building the pipeline, they've been so abused over the years. This has been 
such a difficult process. Such a political football, um, right? For sure. They were aware of this kind of risk. Uh, there is some point where they simply walk away and find another project. You know, the sort of dynamics in Canada that Alberta has this tremendous amount of oil and it can't get it out uh, because some of the other provinces are sort of led by green governments that don't want pipelines. So it's stuck. It's like in this bowl. And the U.S. could have to be frank, taking advantage of that and gotten the oil cheap, uh, you know, and then export our own oil. You know, so we use the cheap Canadian oil and then we export the expensive oil that's down in Texas close to the ports. So this was ready to be a fantastic gift to the U.S., but instead Biden walked away from it. Peter St. On, senior fellow at the Montreal Economic Institute, former fellow at the Mises Institute, contributor to the Journal, the Financial Post and Zero Hedge as well. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Sticking on matters economic, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, you know, one of the great economists in the world, to hear Jen Psaki tell us. She's uh, arguing in the alternative on behalf of printing up another $2 trillion in funny money. Uh, she argued previously that massive new fiscal spending is okay because rates are low, which is fairly um, sophomoric uh, statement in and of itself. Now she's also arguing that uh, the $2 trillion is needed to, quote, help families at risk of going hungry or losing the roof over their heads, unquote. What do we know? We know last year the average household in the bottom quintile of earners received more than $45,000 of government transfer payments from any combination of more than 100 programs and credits. This uh, Phil Graham, uh, former Senator Phil Graham, writing in the Wall Street Journal on the topic of the $2 trillion gambit using uh, data from labor and commerce departments. $45,000 of government transfer payments for any combination, more than 100 programs and credits. 22.6 million households receive food stamps. The evidence of hunger comes from the advocacy group Feeding America, which defines respondents as, quote, at risk of hunger, unquote, if they say they have worried about food security on at least one day of the preceding year. That is not a particularly fair metric, but it is wonderful fodder for pulling of heartstrings, which is what the Treasury Secretary is doing. Yeah, that hard-headed uh, economist, Janet Yellen. Give me a break. You know, the, the uh, depths to which people will sink to rationalize the continued profligacy of D.C. never ceases to amaze. Graham, in his piece, also points out $215 billion uh, in lost uh, employee compensation in uh, the second and third quarters of 2020, compensation down $215 billion in those two quarters. Government personal transfers were up $893 billion, so four and a half to one. Second quarter alone, real per capita disposal income was up 10.5% with the first quarter, 25 times as fast as the average quarterly income growth the prior two years. Quarterly savings rose by almost $800 billion. Historical rate of 7 to 8% of income saved reached an astonishing 26% in the second quarter of last year, he writes. Preliminary data for 2020 show total savings was $1.6 trillion higher than in 2019, and that was before the $900 billion in relief that was inked and is still waiting to be deployed, inked before Trump exited stage right, is still waiting to be deployed. It's just, you know, it, the only problem is always it's not big enough. It's not more as 
Pagliacci Schumer said, you know, can't be penny pinching here, as Joe Biden said during the profligate spending of the Obama years, the shovel ready project spending, which, gosh, this that that looks, you know, positively miserly in comparison. We got to keep spending. We got to we got to spend to keep from going bankrupt. These wonderful pronouncements. And ultimately, uh, you're bringing on these policies are going to bring on the next financial crisis and they're going to make it much deeper. And the, the combination of what they're doing now to engender that next financial crisis, plus slowing down the recovery is going to make it that much deeper and more painful and longer lasting for those least able to weather the storm, even despite these numbers in terms of government transfers and personal savings over this very short period of the last three quarters. This is Dan Prop. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. This new book out. The uh, Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics, and obviously because science and data, 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 data is the word that is repeated like a magical incantation by policymakers and public health professionals in the context of COVID, but also just everything. Everything in life is data-driven. Everything in business is data-driven. We need to be data-centric and so forth. Statistics. Statistics, And so, uh, of course, we have a problem in that most people are not particularly conversant in statistics, at least ones that have sort of the foundational grounding that makes them relevant, the context. And uh, there are all sorts of fallacies that abound in when people discuss data and stats to inform their understanding of a particular challenge or a particular topic or a particular policy proposal. To help us get better with stats, we're pleased to be joined by the author of the aforesaid book, Tim Harford. He's an award-winning columnist, broadcaster, and economist, best-selling author of The Undercover Economist, and, as I mentioned, The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics, which was released just yesterday. Tim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, all right. So give us uh, some easy rules that uh, people can uh, apply to being better or demanding that they're friends and family members get better when discussing stats to try to make an argument or support a particular policy? Oh, Dan, let's not get on to the question of how we can get our friends and family members to be smarter about statistics. I'm, I'm just, I just want to fix myself. I'm not going to get, help you fix anybody else. All right. So, I mean, the, the rule that I think people find most surprising is nothing to do with calculators or spreadsheets. I just encourage people to notice their own emotional reaction to a claim because so often statistics aren't used to show us the world. They're used to, to try to win an argument. And I think if you see a, a claim on social media, you hear something on the radio and you immediately think, oh, that can't be true. That's fake news. Or you think, oh, this proves I was right all along. Whatever that emotional reaction is, it's immediately making you stupider. If we could just take two seconds to notice that knee-jerk reaction, we would immediately, I think, start to think more clearly 
about what's actually being put in front of us, the evidence. Well, one of the other things that you point to is, is publication bias, and I want to amplify that a bit because this in part explains why people have distorted senses of the, the, the particular presence of something in society. For example, uh, there was a survey a few months ago what do you think the case fatality rate, the infection fatality rate for COVID is? And uh, the median response came back to be about 10% of the population, when in point of fact, I think the case fatality rate was something like five-tenths of a percent or something like that. So to be off by a factor of 20x is a problem, and it speaks to how you're receiving information and the assumptions you're making about the information you're receiving. You're absolutely right. So there's everything that we see on social media, on the media, even in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, if that's the kind of thing you like to read, it's been through a particular filter. And a lot of that filter is about what's interesting, what's surprising. So uh, we see, we're more likely to see a report of, say, a 25-year-old dying of COVID than we are of an 85-year-old dying of COVID. Even though when you look at the statistics, 85-year-olds are way, 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 like like a thousand times, two thousand, three thousand times more vulnerable than the young because it's a surprise that a 25-year-old died, died of COVID. That is the story uh, that we'll see. And, and that, that is true for any kind of media and that is true for any kind of fact. You know, if it's not surprising, then why would anybody bother to tell us? So we really need to be on the on the lookout for that. And the the other thing, and this I see this in politics all the time when I was a uh political consultant, I would always tell candidates, do not over-extrapolate from the anecdotal. You're going to come back and you're going to tell me that uh, I went to this event, I spoke to 100 people, everybody loved me, this is going so well. And you're you're taking that 100 people and you're spreading uh, around the reaction you got in that room, in your presence, to you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who you're not going to meet, who you're not going to have that opportunity who won't have that one-on-one opportunity, whose feedback you haven't gotten yet. They say, well, it's, it went so well at that event. It's going so well at these events. It must be you know, a wildfire spreading throughout the particular district. And uh, you know, it often turns out not to be the case because you're using your experience to make wild generalizations. Yeah, it's not only the people that you've met and you've seen their reaction. And not only is that a small percentage of, of all the people in the area, but um, it's also a, they're not the same as all the other people because they're the ones who decided to come to your event. Right. And they're the ones who've had the chance to see your, you know, your you know, amazing political rhetoric. So it's, it's so easy to fool ourselves. One of the challenges that I describe in the book is the challenge of combining that statistical perspective with your personal experience. Because personal experience is not to be dismissed. When you go and you meet the vote as a politician, you go and meet the voters, you do learn stuff. You're going to get much more information, much more detailed information than you'd get from looking at a, a graph about polling. But the polling data is more representative. So it's not an easy task to combine the two. But that's where the real wisdom comes. The statistics plus the personal put them together and you might start to actually make the world make sense. Uh, and although it would help to have some basic math skills, too. So when you you know some study comes out that says uh, People who ate this or drank that have a 42% higher risk of developing prostate cancer. They said, well, okay, 42% more than what? 
you know, so go back to give, give me the original data set. And you're saying that the chance of developing prostate cancer for this particular cohort is 1%. And the people who ate this or drank that have a 42% more likelihood of developing prostate cancer starting off that baseline. So you went from 1% chance to 1.42% chance. You're not, you don't have a 42% chance of getting prostate cancer, but people don't process that. A lot of people don't process it that way. It's a shame because a good journalist or a, a good communicator would actually express that in a different way. They'd say, look, of a thousand people, 10 got prostate cancer, and then, but out of a thousand people who drank coffee or whatever it is, they got prostate cancer. I mean, these are not the real numbers, but right. that sort of presentation, if, if anybody can understand that, it's not, it's not even a super complex piece, piece of math to, to change one into another. But I just think we don't instinctively do that. Journalists aren't trained to communicate like that. We, as consumers of the news, won't necessarily think that way. But it's not, I mean, this is not super hard stuff. No, it, it isn't. Is, it isn't. It's just high school, high school math. But you're right. The reporting and the way we talk about it doesn't provide any context or consequence. So it's just numbers being thrown around. Then people start start to dismiss everything, as you were sort of implying, everything that that uh, runs counter to their understanding of a particular event or dynamic, uh, and rather rather than digging deeper to be able to respond to what they're hearing and be able to, un- well, first understand what's actually going on and then respond to the erroneous things they're hearing. Yeah, uh, context is the word you used. It's so important. In fact, I sometimes use the three C's. So calm, as we discussed, just you know, keep your cool, then context, just where does this piece of information fit in? Can I compare it to something else to help me make sense of it? And then the, the final thing is curiosity, rather than just saying, hey, this headline proves I was right, or this headline is something I'm going to use in a, as a weapon in an argument. To say, ah, oh, this headline's interesting. Um, I want to find out more. I want to dig a little bit deeper, a couple of extra Google searches, read to the second paragraph. Calm, context, curiosity. It's not about the spreadsheets. It's not about advanced math. Those simple questions are really going to help you make sense of the information that is presented to you on a daily basis. And another way to talk about context, too, it's sort of the handle I think you use. It's just like get the backstory. Like, oh, you, the, you, you, yeah. you read a story, something occurred, or people are arguing this. What's the backstory on that? Where does this come from? You trace it back a little bit, and it probably would open up your understanding of what's happening. Yeah, we're so often we, we treat these numbers as though they just kind of descended from some big spreadsheet in the sky and just kind of landed <laughs> in the middle of a news bulletin or, or you know, on the front page of a newspaper or, or you know, on our Facebook feed. And we don't say, well, hang on, where did that come from? And I don't mean that in a, in a really suspicious way, like, oh, that must be, that must be some propaganda. But just like, oh, that's interesting. Where did the number come from? I wonder how they discovered that. I'd like to know a little bit more. Just show an interest. The world's a really interesting place. And when you start viewing it like that, uh, the whole process of consuming information just becomes more rewarding and I think just a little bit less stressful. Hmm. Tim Harford, award-winning columnist, broadcaster, and economist, international best-selling author of The Undercover Economist. Most recently, what we've been discussing, The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics, which is now available to pick it up. Tim, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Oh, thanks so much. My pleasure.
Find a seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, you've had the article of impeachment filed by House Democrat Socialists Tuesday, and you got the, the response from the president's legal team, the answer. So, I mean, let's just, you know, set the table so everybody's properly briefed in advance of next week's trial. There's a couple of uh, particular parts of the article and the answer that are notable. This first, the article of impeachment against President, former President Trump. Uh, President Trump repeatedly issued false statements asserting that the presidential election results were the product of widespread fraud. Then he reiterated his false claims that we won this election and we won it by a landslide on January 6th. And then this is the other phrase he used that they're seizing upon. He willfully made statements that in context encourage and foreseeably resulted in lawless action at the Capitol, such as if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Right. Then he also, it is argued in this article of impeachment, unlawfully, you know, so that was the proximate cause of the unlawful breach and vandalizing of the Capitol and so forth. Uh, And then they also add that uh, there was a prior effort to subvert and obstruct the certification of the results. This uh, was the call that he had with Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State of Georgia, and they, again, cherry pick the language to suggest that he directed Raffensperger to find enough votes to overturn the presidential election results in Georgia and threaten Raffensperger if he failed to do so. Ultimately, this all culminates to endangering the security of the United States and its institutions of government, threatening the integrity, betraying his trust as president. And uh, he has demonstrated he will remain a threat to national security, democracy and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, not in office anymore. But we'll get to that and so on and so forth. So that's the the sum total of the substance in quotation marks of the article of impeachment. And so the answer on these matters and the the interesting thing is the cherry picked, uh, the stilted, the overstated case that Democrat socialists have made, in this case, the House Democrat socialists with respect to the article. It's actually contrasted nicely with a very matter of fact response to the answer that stays within the four corner four corners of the truth and establishes some foundational principles that need to be considered by the triers of fact. Uh, First, basically, the Trump legal team argues that uh, the proceeding is invalid from the start because he's out of office. And they also so they lack jurisdiction. Number two, uh, just as a general matter of principle, they suggest that this constitutes a bill of attainder, which is a legislative act imposing a punishment that runs afoul of due process. And Trump lawyers argue the House of Representatives deprived the 45th president due process for, uh, of law in rushing the article by ignoring its own procedures and precedents going back to the mid 19th century. The lack of due process included, but was not limited to the failure to conduct any meaningful committee review of the other uh, committee review or other investigation, the failure to engage in any full and fair consideration of evidence in support of the article, as well as the failure to conduct any full and fair discussion by allowing the 45th president's positions to be heard in the house chamber. So a star chamber as the predicate for a show trial, not exactly in the American tradition. So it fails in jurisdiction. It fails because it is a bill of attainder, which is unconstitutional and violative of small R Republican norms. But there's a couple other parts I wanted to get to the, the, the two points they make, the statements he made on January 6th 
when addressing the crowd and then the Raffensperger call, because it'd be interesting to see where. Oh, and the, the election was stolen. We have to fight like hell and the Raffensperger call. Those three things, actually. And it's important because the answer perhaps gives us some indication of how the defense will proceed next week and whether or not we're really going to have a circus or it's actually going to be pretty buttoned down and pretty unremarkable other than the fact that this is a second impeachment trial, which is pretty remarkable. They address the he in he falsely claimed the election was stolen. The answer from Trump's lawyers, insufficient evidence exists upon which a reasonable jurist could conclude that the 45th president's statements were accurate or not. And he therefore denies they were false. He has a right to his beliefs. And indeed, he believes and therefore of of errors. The United States is unique on the earth and in that it's granting documents, Constitution Bill of Rights, specifically and intentionally protect unpopular speech from government retaliation. So they go right back to constitutional norms and individual rights as enshrined in the Constitution, rather than arguing whether or not the election was stolen in the answer. Again, it's not dispositive of the whole issue. They could still do that. But it is interesting. Look, it's the predicate issue. Nobody, a reasonable jurist, couldn't conclude one way or the other. So President Trump denies they're false. That's his view. Your view is something else, that a statement was false. It's a free country. You're both entitled to your views. That's pretty straightforward. The uh, matter of uh, fight like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore. Those were the words that incited the violence, according to those who voted to impeach, including the 10 Republicans. They obviously concede the point that people breached the Capitol and so on and so forth, but suggest that uh, you cannot ascribe anything the president said as inciting a riot. Uh, they, they write, it is denied that the phrase, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country more had anything to do with the action at the Capitol, as it was clearly about the need to fight for election security in general, as evidenced by the recording of the speech. It's denied that the president intended to interfere with the county of electoral votes. And as is customary, members of Congress challenge electoral vote submissions and so on and so forth that we've talked about. Uh, it would have been interesting. I, I don't know why it wasn't included in the answer, his reference to peacefully go over to the Capitol. Uh, I don't have the transcript in front of me, but the whole peacefully using that adverb seems to me important. But OK. And then the last piece is the Raffensperger call. Go find the votes. We talked about this at length on this show when the recording and the associated transcript came out and find the votes. The answer, it is denied that the word fine was inappropriate in context as President Trump was expressing his opinion that if the evidence was carefully examined, one would, quote, find that you have many that aren't even signed and you have many that are forgeries. He wasn't threatening Raffensperger. Uh, he didn't act in, inappropriately. He was basically saying, we have this evidence. And you remember from the call, his election attorneys uh, interceded to to talk to Raffensperger directly and say, look, we have these batches of votes that we have questions about. We think there's evidence that could change the results in the state of Georgia. You think there's not. We're asking you to examine these issues we've raised with respect to these specific batches of votes. If we're wrong, we're wrong. And if we're right, we're right. So how it, 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 it's being presented purposefully, disingenuously by pro- proponents of his conviction that he was demanding Raffensperger create votes out of whole cloth. And that is just wildly inaccurate if you listen to the call or read the transcript from the call. Uh, And that's really the sum total of the whole thing. I mean, you would think uh, an impeachment trial would be complicated. It would be involved. There's all these competing ways to look at it. There's all these issues to be resolved. This whole thing can be resolved in about as long as it took for them to uh, 
to, to cobble together the article of impeachment in the House and for Trump's lawyers to put together this uh, 12 page, 13 page answer to that article of impeachment, which uh, is by way of saying, you know, an hour or two if uh, they were really serious about it, unless President Trump decides that he wants to take advantage of the platform to again, prosecute uh, the larger issue of what happened in the 2020 election, I think he should um, take the position he has as uh, acquitted, get that done as quickly as possible, as seamlessly as possible, and then leverage his second acquittal to have conversations about the 2020 election or perhaps even more importantly, the 2022 and 2024 elections. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We've uh, entered a new era of political truthiness uh, once... uh, Jen Psaki has time to get to just exactly the response right to convey to the public. I can, I'll circle back if there's more I can share with you. But I'll circle back with you if there's more to convey. Um, I'll have to just circle back with you. We can circle back. I'm, I'm happy to circle back with you. I can circle back. Uh, I will have to circle back on that one. That's an excellent question. Oh, such an important question. Uh, we will circle back with you and we'll, we'll circle back with you. It's an interesting question, but uh, we'll, ha- we'll circle back. I'm happy to circle back, but I'll have to circle back with you on it. It's a good question, but we'll circle back with you on this today. We will certainly circle back with you more directly. Hopefully we're going to hear less of that now that uh, she's asked for the questions in advance from the press corps. So that should uh, clear up the surprising questions that she gets. She's not prepared to answer. Maybe Donna Brazil can get the questions and slip them to Jen Psaki before her briefings for uh, more on uh, the uh, change in attitude in the D.C. press corps, as well as um, this uh, provocative notion that conservative millennials have gone the way of the dodo bird. Pleased to be joined by David Keltz. He's a was a speechwriter in the executive branch. He's the author of Media Bias in the Trump Presidency and the Extinction of the Conservative Millennial. And he had uh, served uh, as an intern in the White House for VP Pence as well. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good to so, be here. So, uh, I, you, like everybody else that has a room temperature IQ, you've noticed a bit of a change in the tenor of the D.C. press corps with the changeover in administrations. Yes, certainly. It's almost as if the previous reporters that were in the White House covering the Trump administration have now been replaced by White House interns that are just very excited about the opportunity to even be in the briefing room. Um, and so um, what should uh, the... GOP response to this be? I mean, I, you know, I, I hate just sort of complaining about things that we know are true without really doing much about it or directing people other places to go. I mean, nobody's really watching these press briefings anymore either. Uh, anyway, nobody really is paying attention to Joe Biden uh, for good or bad. They're just not. We're more interested on the center right side and arguing about uh, what's going to happen to Liz Cheney or Marjorie Taylor Greene within the House Republican Caucus. Yes, well, I, I guess apparently I'm maybe the only person on the right who's had the unfortunate uh, opportunity to watch or listen to all of these 
press briefings in some form. I really believe that there needs to be more reporters along the lines of Peter Gacy who are actually going to ask insightful questions about these now more than uh, 40 executive actions or 40 executive orders that President Biden has taken. And there really needs to be somebody to ask for what specifically is in these policies and how exactly they're going to help the everyday American person. And I'm not hearing much of that. I know that uh, House Majority Leader McCarthy uh, gave a speech yesterday. The Republican Majority Leader talked about how uh, we need to learn more about energy policy and and how that can benefit the American worker. But I'm not hearing much at this point uh, from the Republican Party about what we're going to do to combat this. And certainly the meeting with uh, the 10 Republicans at the White House, you had Senator Romney was there and Susan Collins and how they're, they're trying to, you know, this $1.9 trillion stimulus that President Biden has offered is going to be a disaster. J.P. Morgan came out with an estimate that said that most states have actually not seen a decrease in their revenue. So there, there's no reason to send $350 billion to bail out poorly run Democrat states. Mm-hmm. With respect to the extinction of the conservative millennial Expound on that, where the conservative millennials, so we're talking about kids that are just out of college to just under 40 years old. There's no conservatives to be found in that demographic? (laughs) Well, perhaps the word extinction is a little bit too severe, but I think it's certainly true that in my experience, uh, being a millennial and someone that was on college campuses in the last decade or so, there's... Very few conservatives to be found that either will admit they're conservative or will speak openly about this. And I I do believe that it's now as these graduates come into the workforce and we're seeing more and more of the woke culture and the business, uh, you know, corporate social justice and, and what have you, that they're trying to basically say that you can't have a voice if you have a difference of opinion. And my fear is that people who have real skills uh, are not going to be uh, they're not going to be hired based off merit or based off their ability to actually do the job, but more so as to whether or not they have the same political views. And I think that's a huge problem, especially when you look at the, the lack of uh, employment opportunities right now. When we come back with uh, David Keltz, I want to talk more about this uh, alleged extinction of conservative millennials and how that came to be. We'll be right back with speechwriter and author David Keltz right after that. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with uh, speechwriter and author David Keltz. Before the break, discussing the um, idea that conservative millennials have gone the way of the dodo birds. I, I think you are describing a real uh, dynamic, uh, David. So, how did this come to be? Well, particularly I, I with millennials. A, sure, I, I think there's a number of factors. Uh, firstly, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, even millennials who, who grew up in a conservative household, by the time they get to, by the time they finish high school or get to a college campus, uh, in many ways it, it's sort of 
you know, a growing of age thing where it's common to, to have different views and almost rebel against your parents' views. But I think the indoctrination of, of what has happened on college campuses with professors who refuse to hear any other point of view has made it so that uh, a lot of students now, they don't want to write an essay or even ask a question that could potentially uh, get them a bad grade in a class. And so I think that has kind of boiled over now. Do you uh, worry at all, particularly for young people, that um, this uh, polarization and the silencing of dissent will uh, uh, push people towards more extreme, not just positions, maybe even less so positions, but more extreme actions in defense of support of their positions? Well, I'm sure that that could go for either side, but I I, I definitely think that uh, when you're you know, Tucker Carlson has been speaking about this a lot lately. I mean, a lot of these executive actions that we keep hearing about involve racial equity. And no one really from the Biden team seems to be able to articulate what exactly that means. Uh, I'm probably the only person who actually looked through one of the executive orders that mentioned it. And there's not a whole lot of substance there. But I think that you are going to see a backlash when when you're, uh, you know, a certain skin color and you're basically being told that your skin color uh, does, you know, you, you don't matter because of your skin color and we want to help other people. And I just think that that's going to cause a lot of division. Uh, since you are one, as you say, who do those who lean center right in that millennial demographic? I mean, who do you get the sense they look to for intellectual guidance or guidance? Well, generally? Certainly- Certainly Ben Shapiro uh, is a major player, as you know. He's, he's got a podcast. He's got the Daily Wire. Um, people like Charlie Kirk probably are, are pretty popular. And so I think a lot of millennials tend to look to people that are on the younger cohort. Uh, they're not necessarily watching Fox News, but they're definitely listening to podcasts and they're trying to have an understanding of how did this happen exactly? How, you know, why... Why are we told in school that our country is, is just terrible and miserable? Why, why can't we have another way of looking at things? And I, I think that they are. That's why these platforms are becoming incredibly successful. Do you think that um, they, I mean, I, I, the, I don't know what sort of perspective you have on this or could have on this, but, um, you know, they listen to this person, that person. They get the sense that they read anything, that they have any understanding of um, uh, historical uh, American history or historical movements in the West, uh, any any notion of this concept of the Western canons, uh, any appreciation for uh, the language or arts? Uh, do they do they think at all or do they just uh, surf YouTube? I mean, you know, they obviously were making wild overgeneralizations, but so, you know, generally speaking, that's what we're talking about, generally speaking that um, they don't know anything, so they're just repeating lines that they heard from other people who are also repeating lines that they heard from other people, and they have no foundation for what they're repeating. They have no real understanding. They're just repeating lines because a lot of the people they listen to also have never read a book of any particular import, even though they may have written some books, and they are just repeating lines too. Well, that goes goes to the point of this being a problem on both the left or right, you know, it's not limited to one uh, persuasion. And I, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's definitely true that a lot of people these days are spe- especially younger people are spending a lot of time on social media and you ask if they read, well, maybe they're reading 280 characters, but I, yeah. I don't know personally uh, how many books they're reading. And I think that 
when you look at simply just retweeting a, a phrase that kind of sounds catchy or is a quick win, uh, that's wonderful. But if you want to actually have a conversation with somebody and be able to articulate your ideas about uh, why liberty and the Constitution and, and uh, property rights and, and that kind of the conservative principles that we espouse, I don't think I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of young people that can articulate why that's the view that they have. I think you're getting to something, actually. I think that's exactly right. They look at this like YouTube. Conservatism has just become like another like WWF fake sport. Uh, slammed. This guy slammed this guy in an interview or something like that. And then you actually watch the thing and it's nothing of the sort. Number one, it's just hype. And number two, it's not even particularly interesting. It's just a repetition of pat lines that uh, you could cut and paste from the RNC website, for example, on our side to be a little bit self-reflective. I think that's I think that's a huge problem. And I don't think very many people talk about it. This this latest uh, person on TV's book or this latest pundit's book. And we talked to some some of those people, not too many because they're boring because they don't know anything. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's so somebody who actually probably speaks to them and has more more uh, cachet with uh, that generation, including uh, center right sort of activists of that generation. than certainly I do. Um you know, maybe that maybe explore that some more and you could um, repopulate the species of conservative millennials. Yeah, well, certainly I'm trying to write articles that I think give a different perspective, a, a, a point of view, and they lend a voice to the conservative side. And, and so, I know, an article is typically anywhere from 800 to 850 words. So that that would be a good start would just be for. Yeah. Young conservatives to to check out. Uh, I'd certainly recommend the American Spectator, uh, where I've written a number of articles for. And I just think that there needs to be more of people having the courage to to do research on their own, and not because they're assigned something in class. I mean, reading is not supposed to be something that that is strenuous and, and difficult. You know, perhaps people feel that way, but maybe they just haven't been picked up picked up the right material. David Keltz, speechwriter, former speechwriter in the executive branch, author of Media Bias and the Trump Presidency and the Extinction of the Conservative Millennial. He also served as a White House intern for BP Pence. David, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thanks for having me. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. In case you thought the uh, left was done sensationalizing January 6th and AOC in particular, uh, the uh, socialist Spice Girl front girl on Instagram talking about her harrowing experience going face-to-face with a Capitol Hill police officer who was directing her where to go on that fateful day. There was no partner, was not yelling, you know, Capitol Police, et cetera, et cetera. But then it didn't feel right because he was looking at me with a tremendous amount of anger and hostility. 
things weren't adding up. Like there was no partner there. And there was no one was yelling. He wasn't yelling like, this is Capitol Police. This is Capitol Police. And he was looking at me in all of this anger and, and hostility. And at first, you know, in, in my brain and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I just came from this super intense experience just now. Maybe I'm reading into this, right? Like maybe I'm projecting like something onto him that, that like maybe I'm just seeing anger, but maybe he's not trying to be angry. But um, I talked know, to G, right, my legislative like, director. That's about all I can stomach. I mean, this is one of the dumbest people you're going to come across. You want to talk about extolling vice in this country, extolling ignorance, just rank stupidity. And this is a cause celeb for the left and the left media. By contrast, and just to continue on celebrity, since I don't know, she's has the same sort of profile he does, although one has earned it. I'm talking about Denzel Washington. You know, he's got a new movie now called Little Things. I haven't seen it yet, but I will because I see everything Denzel Washington is in. He plays a cop. Uh, speaking with Yahoo Entertainment, Denzel said he has the utmost respect for men and women who put their lives in line to keep people safe. I, I have the utmost respect for what they do, for what our soldiers do, people that sacrifice their lives. I just don't care for people who put those kind of people down. <clears throat> AOC. Uh, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have the freedom to complain about what they do. Huh. Uh, he um, recalled a story when he went on a call with a police sergeant when he was preparing for his role in, in the movie Ricochet. I went on a call with a sergeant. We got a call from a man outside his house with a rifle that was distraught. We pulled up and did a U-turn past the house and came up short of the house. He told me to sit in the car, which I was going to do. I wasn't getting out. He got out, and as he got out, another came car, a car came screaming up, and two young people jumped out screaming. As it turned out, it was their grandfather. This policeman diffused the entire situation just by remaining calm. Um, but it showed me in an instant how they can lose their life. He didn't overreact. He could have pulled his gun and shot the people that came up driving real fast. He could have shot the old man that was distraught and a bit confused. I think he was suffering a, a little bit from dementia. But in an instant, it taught me that I never uh, it taught me and I never forgot it. Where law enforcement people have to deal with moment to moment, second to second. And can can you imagine what that Capitol Hill police officer had to deal with moment to moment, second to second on January 6th, having to direct AOC and all of her neuroses to a place of safety. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please continue to stay informed so you can be courageous and we can live freely. And join us again tomorrow for another installment. This is the Dan Prof Show.